Lindsay Garcia is not just the executive director of the 22Q Family Foundation, but a fierce and loving advocate for all things 22Q, especially when it comes to her son, Cohen. In today's episode, she shares her personal story of how her family and Cohen are doing and what his first few years of life were like. She also shares all the amazing programs and resources that the 22Q Family Foundation offers for not just the individual living with 22Q, but the entire family. So I am honored to introduce you to Lindsay. Welcome to the 22Q Podcast. My name is Becky White, and today I have my dear friend, Lindsay Garcia from the 22Q Family Foundation, the executive director, and just an amazing 22Q mom that I've grown to love and know so well. So Lindsay, thank you so much for being on. Introduce yourself and tell the world who you are. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be on. I've listened to every episode that you've put out so far in the podcast, Um, and I just want to start by saying that I appreciate you taking this on. I think this is something that has been so needed in our community and I've gotten so much out of every episode that I've listened to. I know the feedback has been really well received. And so I just wanted to start by saying, thank you. Thank you for saying that, but thank you for all your support too. I feel like every episode, I definitely mentioned the 22Q family foundation and all the amazing work you're doing. And that's really what we're going to highlight today. And then for you to share your beautiful son with us, start by saying, just introduce yourself who you are, where you live, your family, and what do you do? Well, my name is Lindsay, uh, Lindsay Garcia, executive director of the 22Q Family Foundation. We are a family of four currently moved to Colorado and we are staying in Colorado. (laughs) We've lived in three different states so far with our kids. Um, My kids were born in Chicago, Illinois, Uh, stayed there for a couple of years, then moved to California, which is where I'm from originally for about five years. And then after the pandemic started, we really just had some deep heartfelt conversations about, is this the right place for us? And decided to relocate to Colorado kind of on a whim. I'm a very type A personality, if you know me. So it's very, uh, not in my (laughs) wheelhouse to be that type of person to just kind of make a sporadic move, but we did, and we're loving it here. Um, so I have a 11 year old daughter named Isla and then my son, his name is Cohen and he has 22 Q and he just turned nine yesterday. I can't believe he's nine. It's crazy. He actually wants to stop. He wants to stay little. It's so funny. Really? I Why? Daughter, I have no idea. I tell that to my daughter, please stop crying. She's like, no, mom, I want to be 15. I tell that to Cohen and he says, I'm going to tell everyone at school that I'm turning nine, but to you, mom, I'm going to stay eight. <laughs> oh, my You're heart. like, okay. I'm like, we have a plan. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. Fine. You can say small forever. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about the family foundation how it got started and, you know, how it was originally with the Ryan Dempster foundation. Definitely. Well, I know we'll get into my diagnosis story later. Um, but once we did get the diagnosis, it was such a foreign thing to hear 22 Q and 1.2 deletion syndrome. And so we went on to, uh, Mr. Google, Mrs. Google, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, and discovered when we were, cause we were in Chicago at the time that there was a 22 Q foundation that helped support this community. It was called the dumpster family foundation. My husband was super excited because he's a big sports fan and Ryan Dempster, who is a retired uh, pitcher for the Chicago Cubs and the Red Sox had a daughter named Riley 
with 22 Q. I think that really just normalized it for us um, to be able to see a celebrity that was out and open about it and spreading awareness for it. So we really wanted to do everything possible to support this foundation. We did some fundraising. My husband worked with a local brewery called Pipeworks Brewery in uh, Chicago at the time to create a special beer that was named after Cohen. It was called Cohen State of Kind. It was a I think blueberry hibiscus ale, very, very strong. Um, <laughs> and on the back of the label, it actually had a description about 22Q and we donated those um, profits of that barrel to the Dumpster Foundation. We also designed some socks and we really just tried to be in, as involved with them as possible. We'll get into this later about our journey, but he was very medically fragile. We needed to be closer to family that could really support us. Ryan's family did live 45 minutes south, but I really wanted to be closer to my family. So we decided to move to California to be closer to my mom and move in with her actually to just save funds. Um, and at that time, I got a call from the executive director of the Dempster Family Foundation that they were going to be closing their doors. I was completely shocked and blown away. This was a community resource that was so invaluable um, to me and to all the 22Q community because of the free educational resources that they provided that I literally got off the phone. My husband was, we were on speaker when we heard this, we both looked at each other at the exact same time. I can still remember where I was in the kitchen. And we said to each other, I think we should open our own nonprofit. I didn't think twice about it. It was a very wow. weird feeling. It just felt right. Um, and then at that time, the old previous executive director, Michelle Breedlove sells connected us with another family, Katie Chiat, and she helped us start the 22Q Family Foundation. So we started it in 2016, filed for our 501c3, and we've been going strong ever since. Um, wow. How did you just have that leap of faith? I feel that at the core of everyone, everyone wants to do good and give back. Everyone wants to be able to give to others, but I feel that many people stop at the idea stage and are too scared to continue and go into the actual, how are we going to get this done? How is this possible? Like, how did you and your husband make it happen? Um, I think looking back, I had asked to be on the board of the Dempster Family Foundation for a few years. And Michelle kind of kept turning me away because she knew that we were a hot mess. My son had a feeding too, was on oxygen. She's like, Lindsay, this is, you have no time for this. Come back to me later. So I think that's honestly in my heart, she's never told me this, but I kind of feel like, why did she reach out to me? You know, I was really always actively involved with the um, foundation anyways. So I think that was one reason it was just my desire and interest to do this. I had never worked in any type of nonprofit field in my life. I'm previously a teacher. Uh, a lot of what we do at the foundation and a lot of what the Dempster Family Foundation provided through the education station program with um, IEP consultations, was very up my alley because I was a teacher and I had lots of experience sitting in IEP meetings for students. Uh, also had the flexibility, my husband, a job. And so, and I was with my family at the time. So I had, I guess, the means to take the leap of faith, um, you yeah. could say. Yeah. You had the support, you had the connections and you also had people that were willing to help you. And I can also say that the, we didn't know this at the time, but after we had filed you know, I, I knew I was going to get some guidance and reassuring words from Michelle Breedlove Sells. Uh, never in my wildest dreams did I expect us to also inherit the um, remaining assets of the foundation. So that really helped us get a good start. You know, That's starting great. a nonprofit is extremely challenging. And so to be able to start with like some seed money was very helpful. That's great. So you've been at it for 
six years with the 22Q Family Foundation. Tell me about some of the resources that you provide for families. Yeah, definitely. So we inherited one program from the Dempster Family Foundation, and that was the education station. So it is basically education, educational consulting, supporting families through the unique journey of having a child with an IEP, which most of our kids with 22Q will end up having in school. Um, I think it's a unique fight in the 22Q journey. Medically, a lot of our kids are eventually get hooked up really well with medical professionals. But once they get into school, that's really where the lack of understanding comes. I can say as a teacher, I never maybe had a child in my class with 22Q, but I was never educated on that. So that program is really beneficial and it's really the bread and butter of what we do. Donna Keller Landsman is our educational consultant. She has 30 plus years of knowledge. I know you already interviewed her. She's written a book about educating um, children with the syndrome. They do have a very unique learning style. So because they present very typically, a lot of times they're under the radar unless advocates come in or parents are gung-ho about really advocating for what their child needs and this, the unique learning intricacies of the syndrome. Um, that is our one program, and we've been doing that since 2016. We serve anywhere from 80 to 100 families a year in districts uh, nationwide, some international as well. Um, our second program, Career Pathways, started, I believe, in 2017, early 2018, and that is a program that came after the calling from the community for support. Uh, I can say that one of the downsides to our board is that we have families on it that have younger children, really see the trajectory of what the needs are for the adult community. But we had many parents, many families that were crying out for support. How support can I get for my child transitioning from high school to adulthood? What does that look like? What about if my child wants to go to college? What if they're trying to find a job? How do they navigate becoming a self-advocate, all those things. And so we designed our, our first program, uh, Career Pathways. And so what Career Pathways is basically what the word means, you know, that there's different pathways to success. It may look different for our community, but how do we get them there based on their skills and interests and needs? And so Jason Osborne is our career coach. It's a similar setup to Education Station with Donna. He consults, though, the young adult. And this starts as young as early teenagers, to really mm -hmm. have that outside person from the house, not mom or dad that's saying, Hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? Or let's practice your interview or whatever it is. Um, it's that outside person that can build that relationship with that individual and be almost like a check-in point throughout their life as they're transitioning. Mm -hmm. So that's our career pathways program. And then we also started the Riley Dempster 22Q family foundation scholarship. And that was basically to pay respect and homage to Ryan Dempster for helping us get our start. Riley is his daughter. Um, every year we've been able to continue to grow that program. And we award usually six individuals with a varied degree of scholarship funds. The last two years, we've actually opened that up to parents. So for many parents that have a child with 22Q, they usually have to sometimes make a career change um, or maybe they want to go back to college. So that program is also open to parents in our community as well. I didn't realize that. That's wonderful. And the career, I should back up the career pathways program as well is also open to parents. That's um, we try to really, we're truly trying to build, and that's kind of to answer your question. Our long-term goal is to provide support to the entire family. I think when we started being that we had young children, we knew that this was something that directly affected our kids because we saw them struggle medically with things that they have to go through when they're little but really it's a trickle down effect. This mm -hmm. is something that is affecting the whole family and the older that my kid gets, the more I can honestly say that it's, it's something that the whole family takes on. 
And so that's right. really something at the foundation that we want to try to do is to support the whole family from diagnosis through adulthood. Mm-hmm. And what other ways are you getting the word out there about 22Q? Have a you know Facebook page, obviously an Instagram page. Um, we also run the majority of the 22Q state groups. Um, to connect family. We've done a variety of things to raise awareness. Um, I can start by talking about our hashtag rock your cue. So that's something that my husband created when we first started the foundation, just as you know, he really wanted to make 22Q go viral. We're, we're kind of working on it. So we're still not quite there, but once we do, <laughs> we'll let you know. Okay. Um, but hashtag rock your cue was created because technically the deletion is on the Q arm, you know, when you're talking about the gene makeup, it just stands for our community is rocking your differences, being proud of who you are, not letting anything come in your way when you want to reach the success you want to reach. That is something that we created in hopes that people would travel and they would cut out the queue that you can download on our website. Um, it's a big orange signature, it's our signature queue, um, and take it to different places, post about it, and also put it next to maybe famous um, athletes numbers. So someone that was wearing a 22 could then put the Q next to it. Uh, we've had different celebrities that have actually learned maybe briefly about 22 Q Bill Murray, uh, ran into one of our friends at an airport after the Cubs went to the world series and got a brief ex explanation of 22 Q. Um, so that's one of our awareness campaigns. Another one is we started actually last year or this year, I should say in 2021, we're going to do it again in 2022 is a virtual run uh, where you run or walk 2.2 miles. We had people participating all over the world. I was blown away. We have a huge following on our Instagram of international uh, followers and they had printed off our logo and we're running through the Amazon jungle with it, which wow. is incredible. We also try to highlight and really show 22Q. It obviously manifests in everyone differently, but to put a face and a story to the diagnosis, because it, it is such a scientific diagnosis, right? 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. But what does that look like? That was actually one of the first questions. And I'm not really ashamed to say it because to me, it just sounded so foreign, so alien-like. Mm -hmm. And the geneticist said, well, you know, they tend to look typical, but they also look like each other. And I, it's definitely, that is always, that's always the case. I feel like, um, so to be able to share the different stories, how 22 Q manifests itself in these different individuals, we try to highlight a different individual or family every single Monday on our social media. I think that's been one of our biggest successes. We have tons of feedback from families saying, wow, thank you so much for sharing this, or my kid struggles the same way. And I think, you know, props to you for the podcast, because I think that has taken our stories similar to what we do on Mondays, but you've really been able to elaborate on that and really dive deep into hearing about the whole journey and not just a few sentences. I really do enjoy those Monday posts just to see people and get to know the community. And I know it may sound weird, but it makes you feel like you're not alone. And that's really important for this community, because when you do get that diagnosis, many of us do feel like we're alone. When you hear 22Q, you, your first question is usually what is that? So mm -hmm. just seeing your social media page and having all those connections is wonderful. And how can people find you on social media? If they're looking for you? everything is at 22 Q family. So just search for 22 Q family. Um, we are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and I believe we have a LinkedIn account as well. Mm -hmm. And what is your vision for the 22Q Family Foundation, what is a goal of yours, say five, 10 years from now, where do you wish this could go and where do you hope it can go? 
So at the end of the day, we are families supporting families. We're always going to be sharing about the top research, being up to date on all that stuff. But at the end of the day, we're really families that are supporting families through this unique diagnosis and journey. What, like what I said earlier, my end goal is to have the resources and services to support the entire family. So whether it's helping mom or dad, who's now caregiver, find a new career, supporting the siblings. That's something we're really trying to tackle in the next few years, kind of coinciding with my own unique journey with my daughter, but we're having a lot of animosity and confusion and questions about 22Q and why does he have it? And why did this happen to our family? So that's something that we're going to be tackling in the next few years is providing more sibling support. But yeah, I think that's my end goal is just to continue to grow our programming to support the entire family. Cause it really is a diagnosis that is not just happening to the child. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it's wonderful that you're thinking ahead and thinking forward about the entire family. So tell me, what is one thing you're really proud of this past year that you've accomplished? I would say hands down the 22 Q moms retreat. Um, this is something that actually started back in 2018, with a fellow 22Q mom, Courtney Hayes and Megan Chisholm, who both came to me with the idea to schedule a weekend, ideally for any parent, you know, it started with moms. We hope to one day support the fathers as well. Um, but it was a bunch of moms that were just feeling isolated, feeling like their best friends didn't understand them. Their husbands didn't understand the brunt of what they were taking on raising these children. Uh, we put together a retreat in Carefree, Arizona back in 2018 with 36 moms from 15 states. And this past year, and Becky, you were one of our amazing organizers. It's a, it's a big undertaking. It but is. We had our, held our second 22Q Moms Retreat, also in Carefree, Arizona, this time welcoming 70 moms from, I think, 20 states, having children ranging in ages from, I believe, a year to 40. So right. moms came together from all different walks of life. It didn't matter what the political backgrounds were, what their socioeconomic status was, what state they were from. It came down to the fact that we all have this shared common bond. And now this has happened twice. And I can honestly say that each time we do this, it's incredible to see these moms come together who some have met online, but most haven't. And most, some have never even met another mom with 22Q that has a child with 22Q, I should say, um, instant bond, like all the BS is put aside and they just start talking and there's crying and there's laughter. But at the end of the day, it's just this group of women that understands what we're going through. We don't have to explain to them what a feeding tube is. We don't have to explain to them what open heart surgery looks like and how scary that can be. Everyone just gets it. So <laughs> I'm very proud of that. It's not obviously not something that I did alone. It was a whole team of individuals and we hope to continue it. It's something that I think this time around, we really saw the need for this support more so than ever. I think after COVID, sheer amount of isolation intensified. And so that need to connect is huge. And this is the one program that is not free, not something that the foundation pays for. Everything else I'm really proud to say is hundred percent free to all families and individuals, all the programs that I mentioned before. This one is not. However, with that being said, the foundation, you know, as we continue to grow, it's something that we really want to start putting a small portion of our budget toward something that we saw such value in, and it also goes back to our mission. Our mission is to um, provide services to families, to support the families and to connect families. Mm -hmm. And the connection piece, I think by far is the most important to, to make it through and on this very unique journey that we're all living. Yeah. And as a mom, go, having gone to it twice and experiencing it, it's terrifying at first. You're going to 
this retreat with a bunch of women that you've never met before. And it's very intimidating. And honestly, I question if I should go, but then once you get there, like everyone has said, it feels like you've known these people forever. It's an experience that every mom should get three days off. But for us in this community, it is, I, I kept saying it was life-changing. Whenever I came back from the retreat, people would ask, oh, how was your retreat? And I would always say it's life-changing. And they're like, oh, wow, was that impactful? And I'm, I'm like, absolutely. Because not only are you connecting with these other women and hearing about their children, but it's a sense of no matter what you're going through, whether it is 22Q, whether it is whatever sort of sadness or struggles you're facing, it's so important to find your community. It's so important to find people who understand what you're going through so that you can support each other. And this is what this has done. And it also has created a lot of advocates for 22Q. I mean, that's how I started this podcast. I had been thinking about this idea for years and Whenever I would go on Apple, Apple, um, podcast, I would type in 22 Q to see if anything was on there. And there was like one or two episodes, but there was never something focused towards it. Whereas if you type in down syndrome, there's tons of podcasts. Mm -hmm. And I thought there's so many of us out there. Why not share our stories? Cause we could all learn from each other. So thank you for putting it on. Thank you for running such an amazing foundation that supports so many of us, including our families. Is there anything else you want to add about the 22Q Family Foundation before we start to hear about your beautiful little boy? <laughs> no, just, just, I guess to keep us going is awareness is huge. We really rely on the community to get active, get out there. There's only so many of us at the foundation and it's up to kind of our community to share those stories. It's a, it's a touchy subject when it comes to having your child with labels, right? We, I don't let that define my child. And I know most of us don't, but sometimes it's kind of nerve wracking to put yourself out there and share your story. But what I have noticed hands down is when you share your story and the foundations and communities and resources that support your child's story, you'll be really surprised on how many people come around. And sometimes it might be people that you haven't talked to since high school were our vague acquaintances, you know, but I think just being vulnerable is so huge. And that's really what's going to get awareness out there because we, we can talk awareness all day within our own community, but it's bridging that gap between our community and then the surrounding communities so that eventually the world knows about 22Q. So, mm -hmm. and we'll get there. And how can people support the 22Q family foundation? number of ways you can, like I said before, with awareness, just kind of spreading the word about 22Q, especially this is our last day of 22Q November awareness month, but we hope that you try to spread awareness all year long. You can order mini pamphlets off of our website. Uh, they're free. You get 10 at a time and just an easy way to pass out a little bit of awareness when you're at the grocery store or the post office. Um, you can fundraise. So create a Facebook fundraiser for your birthday. You'd be shocked with the people that might not send you a $25 birthday gift in the mail, but they're willing to give $25 to a cause that you believe in. It's so true. I did so it this true. past year and I was blown away. Yeah, people you haven't even talked to. Like it's, it's, it's amazing. People do. Idea. Yeah. People want to give and, and help, but it, everyone's crazy busy. So if they can click a button and help, they'll do it. So you can do that on Facebook or Instagram. Right. That's great. Thank you for sharing those. And would like to change gears and for you to share your personal journey with 22Q, how it began and whatever you'd like to share. Went to our 20 week ultrasound, like everyone else does within 45 minutes of them focusing in on his heart. I knew something was wrong. I just had this instant feeling we had, it didn't take that long with my daughter 
uh, the ultrasound tech left the room immediately. And so I'll be right back. I'm just going to go grab a doctor. So my husband and I look at each other and just, you know, that pit in your stomach that forms, um, it was complete silence. You could hear a pin drop in that room. And he came in and said, you know, he has a heart defect. It's called tetralogy of flow. We also see fluid on his kidneys. And so because there's two systems affected and it's not just a heart defect, which is one in a hundred for birth defects. Um, we really think of this as a genetic, um, he has a genetic disposition and we want to see if you want to get tested for something that we think is very rare, very, very rare. Most likely won't come back as that. I still remember him saying that. Wow. Cause I feel like that, you know, words are powerful. And so when you say that to someone, of course, that's what I internalized. So when you actually get the phone call down the road, it's even more shocking. Um, but I'm a planner. I'm, I was a teacher at the time. And so I wanted to have as much information as possible. We did not do genetic testing with either of our kids. Um, and so we did an amnio and had to wait the very long two to three weeks. I mean, it was the longest weeks of my life, but they had also were testing for other things. And so I was kind of banking on that. And I can still remember where I was. I was driving back from a play date with my daughter on the highway in Chicago and the geneticist aunts, you know, went on the phone. She was very nice. She said, Hey, results came in. And actually he has, you know, she said to George, but the newer name, which I appreciate her saying is 22Q, 11.2 deletion syndrome. I don't know how I got home. I mean, driving with tears, like waterfall tears coming down. Um, mm. My daughter was in the back. She was only two and a half at the time. So she really didn't know. And I wasn't like trying to make it as noticeable to her as possible. I just remember kind of sitting on the couch, sobbing uncontrollably. It's probably the most extreme sorrow I've ever felt in my life. I was sad for my family. I was scared for what the new baby was going to be like, how we would affect our family, what was going to happen to him. Um, just kind of scared about what life would be like is the one thing that he's taught me is that everything is not white picket fences. And that's how I was before him, to be honest. I, everything was perfect. If it wasn't perfect, it looked perfect. Mm -hmm. That was the first time in my life where I'm like, this is not going to be the picture perfect life that I envisioned. It's just not I sat on the couch with my husband. And that's when we found out about Ryan. I can still remember him grabbing my hand. He, he was very calm, which is funny because he tends to not be a calm person. But in that moment, I think he just knew he needed to be. Mm -hmm. So he really didn't have a lot of emotion and I was sitting there sobbing. He grabbed my hand and he said, it's going to be okay because Ryan Dempster has a baby with us. And I was like, who the hell is Ryan Dempster? <laughs> Who's Ryan? Stop it. And then he told me the story and you know, the rest is history, but I think that was something else I'll never forget. Um, so yeah, so that, you know, that was our diagnosis story. I feel blessed and lucky that we got the diagnosis early, yeah. but even with that diagnosis, his first year of life was insane. Yeah. Tell me about that. It was a blur. We were in a battle zone. He was born at 36 and a half weeks. C-section. Yeah. I did have an entire team. It looked like ER in there. I had probably 30 plus people because we anticipated that he had had this uh, heart defect tetralogy of flow, which is very common with 22Q. He came out pink. He was supposed to come out blue. He was crying and he had better APGAR scores than my daughter. So then you have that sense of, oh, they're wrong. He stayed with me for just a few minutes, but then they noticed he was rapidly breathing. So they did take him immediately to the NICU, but they said, well, this is odd. Um, after probably a few hours realized they did another echo because now, you know, they're not going through the wall of me and him. And they realized, oh, it's just a small VSD, which is a very common heart defect. And it's just a hole in the heart, um, which is honestly almost like a blessing that they messed up the heart defect diagnosis because I don't think they maybe would have tested for yeah. 22Q because tetralogy flow is really directly linked along with a few others 
Um, and to this day, the kid has never had open heart surgery. We see cardiology every year. There's still a chance he might need it, but I really thought that things were going to go smoothly because the plan was open heart surgery. He might be in the hospital for like a month recovering. He'll go home. This kid was in and out of the hospital for 17 weeks over the course of like four or five months. So we were in wow. for three weeks, then we would go home for two or three days, in for three weeks, home for two days. And it repeated like that. Wow. Until he was born in November until April. Um, lots of testing, procedure after procedure. He had. Yeah. What was one of those first procedures? So now that the hole was just a, not just a hole in the heart, but it wasn't Tetralogy of Fallot. You knew you didn't need to do open heart, but what were the other things happening? So he, his main thing that was happening was he was just, he was tachypnic, which is basically rapidly breathing, um, 80 to hundred beats a minute. So you can just see him, you know, tucking is what it's called oh. under his neck and by his pectus. So they had to have him on oxygen, which made it very hard for me to try to breastfeed him or bottle feed him or any kind of feed him <laughs> for that matter. Yeah. Um, it just wasn't safe to feed him. And so the first couple things were not surgeries. It was just procedures. So they scoped him. They noticed they, he had a little bit of bronchial malaysia. Uh, I say three days of life. My number one fear with this syndrome was I had asked the geneticist, what are some of the medical things that come with this? And she said, well, you know, some kids have heart surgery. Some kids have feeding tubes. I don't know what it was about a feeding tube. It scared the living daylights out of me. To me, it sounded so medical. I did not want medical things in my home. I was like, I can handle the school stuff. I can handle if he needs lots of appointments. I cannot handle a feeding tube. And I remember telling this to them. And they said, well, we're going to have to put an NG tube in to feed him safely. I still remember walking in that first day. I I guess I had given them permission to do it. I don't remember that. I just know that we went to lunch briefly, came back and there was this ugly thing sitting in front of his nose. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe, like, I can't believe this is happening. And that wasn't even, permanent. you know, that's just something you pull out of your nose. Um, the goal was that that way we could go home because he wasn't able to feed safely. He didn't have the swallow suck pattern down. Um, and because he was rapidly breathing, it was, they were worried about aspiration. So they said, okay, well, great. You're going to go home. We just have to train you how to do this. I was like, okay. <laughs> so long story short, he did not like that in his nose for some reason. He was really? very aware of it and he pulled it out so much that he was so inflamed that the head nurse could not teach us how to put it in. So then we were told in order to get you home. Now we were, now we've been in there for about two weeks and we have a two and a half year old at home. And in oh. order to get you home, we're going to have to put a G tube in. They're like, it's not permanent. It can still come out, but it is a surgery. You know, it's right above the belly button. It basically looks like a little beach ball, um, closure. That's kind of what it looks like. Cause people are always like, what does it look like? Um, and so we, we had to do it. It was, it was one of those things where it was like, I can't even train him. I don't want to spend any more weeks at home. And I think at this point, doctors were kind of saying, I think this is gonna be something he's going to need for a little bit, but it's not long-term, you know? Yeah. So that is what got us home. Um, but each time we came home with him, you know, we're adding things each time. So the first time it's the feeding tube and I don't believe oxygen come back in because he's rapidly breathing again. So basically they told me certain things to look for. If, if those things happened, I was to go back in and they were going to admit us. We would always spend, we got Christmas. That was great. He gave us that two days after that, he's rapidly breathing again, take him back in. They would, that would lead to more testing, more procedures, trying to figure out and, and usually adding more support. <laughs> Second time he goes in, they figure he has, and I found this out um, because babies sleep all day long, but I noticed that he kept desatting, which is like his oxygen saturations went down when he was um, sleeping. And they said, well, he's always sleeping. And I said, well, I understand, but when he is awake, he's not doing that. 
checked and they noticed, yeah, he had a really floppy airway. He didn't have adenoids and tonsils at the time. They're so little. Um, so we went home on oxygen three more weeks, a few days at home again, rapidly breathing, go back in more testing. And this time they're kind of hinting at maybe he needs a GJ tube. So a GJ tube is in the same spot as where G2 would be, but basically you have to go through radiology to get it set. And it goes into the jejunum, which is the little small intestines. And so basically the food or the formula we would put into his feeding tube pump would bypass his stomach because what they were thinking was he's rapidly breathing because he's probably having so much reflux that he's slowly aspirating, even though nothing showed up on an x-ray he would get home and just, they, they'd get him sorted out enough at the hospital. And then when we got home, it kind of just kept happening. And so what ended up happening was that third time back at home, he turned blue in my kitchen. I was actually on the way to a doctor's appointment. Oh um, I had to call the ambulance. They came the minute they got there, they were just able to crank up the oxygen and he was fine, but it was, you know, it's kind of like you're fighting two battles. The oxygen's going in the nose down to the lungs and then the feeding is coming up. And so he basically was choking because he didn't have the GJ. Oh and at that point, got in the hospital. Then he ended up coding with me and two nurses in an elevator to actually go down and get it switched to a GJ2. Almost wow. lost him. Um, surprisingly, I, I was extremely calm. I did not cry a tear. People thought, what is wrong with this mom? So you're in I'm- an elevator with the one other nurse? Two. And they were, yes, two nurses. And he codes. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. And so and once he- those doors opened, you know, it was the whole team of people and they're kind of looking at mom, like what mom, you okay. You want us to bring in the chaplain? Or I think honestly, it's really crazy to say, but I think I thought I was losing him at that point. And I was almost like, cause our, our battle, <laughs> our journey had been so intense those first few months. I was like, I can't take any more of this. Like, this is it, I guess, you know, we came back and had that GJ tube. And honestly, it was life-changing because then we were able to stay at home. So we came home on eight liters of high flow oxygen, a feeding pump, 15, running 15 hours a day, endless medicines. Um, we did not sleep. My husband and I were like passing in the night. Like (laughs) we would take turns because we had to change his feeding pump, but that really kept us home. And besides one other time where he just got really dehydrated, we have only been hospitalized or in the hospital for scheduled surgeries since he was four months old, which is honestly not everyone in this community can say, but we did have a very intense beginning. <laughs> wow. That is so much, so much. Oh my gosh. Did I know, you and ever- I can say without even a tear because it's honestly like, as I was writing some notes about today, like, it's crazy just to look back. You just, you kind of just put on this warrior hat and you just power through. And I, you know, I love when people say like, oh, I don't know how you do it, you know? And I, I know that they don't have any ill intent for that, but to me, I'm like, you have no other choice. You really don't. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate our friends and family. We had, we were like the first ones of our uh, friends group to have kids. And so even with Cohen, only a few of our friends had maybe a kid. So we relied on them so much. They had meal trains for us running for, you know, Mm. literally those four months, I did not have to cook a meal. And so I still am so thankful for that. And anytime else, anyone I know is sick or going through anything like that, the first thing I do is set up a meal train because that was life-changing for us to have that kind of support in the community. Right. Jeez. He is a little warrior (laughs) and he has no idea. I, can we go back to that elevator? Have you gone back to that moment and processed it at all and worked through it? Or are you still kind of like you were at peace no, with it? I have. It doesn't, I think I just knew that he was struggling so much that I 
had to be the strong one. Mm-hmm. So I kind of just stepped out of the way and I was by myself. I think my husband was at work. Oh so gosh. I had to call him and be like, he's literally like, they're bagging him right now. Um, yeah, it's a really weird, I can't, I don't know why, I don't know why I was the way I was, but, um, I think, you know, I think you yeah. said it very nicely. I mean, that's, that is an extremely traumatic moment. You were in the safest place possible. Yeah. You were true. already in the hospital. I'm so glad that you I had two nurses with you. Yeah. yeah. And there was nothing that you necessarily could have done. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know that about his story. That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. So tell me, you know, he's nine. What has his journey been like? So, um, you know, it's kind of ebbed and flowed and changed along its journey when he was very young. I'd say the first five years, um, feeding and, uh, GI was our number one struggle. Mm -hmm. Neurogenic bladder bowel. What, what, what was it about GI? Uh, just intense reflux because eventually we wanted to try to transition him off of his GJ tube to a G tube, which is then going back to feeding your stomach so that eventually we could work up to him being an oral eater. Um, that's probably the one specialist that I've seen the most for second, third, fourth opinions is GI. Um, not sure why it's just the way it was, but that was definitely his biggest struggle then. And now it's really changed and it's all ENT. So many ear infections, five or six uh, placements of ear tubes. Now we have two ruptured tympanic membranes. We were actually supposed to get surgery a couple of weeks ago or months ago, I should say, to patch those holes because he has mild hearing loss in one ear and moderate in the other. So he technically needs hearing aids, but they said it's more so because related to the hole that his ear is functioning properly. Um, but then just started getting ear infections again after, you know, now that masks are lifted and COVID's <laughs> the pandemic safety of being at home is over. So we're just not able to get that surgery yet. Um, so we actually have been discharged from GI. We no longer see GI, um, because his reflux kind of figured itself out. Out of all of his diagnoses and things that have come up, what is his biggest struggle? The biggest one I think for him and us as a family was just the feeding piece. So trying to have an end goal of, okay, this kid's feeding 15 hours a day on a feeding pump that's pumping for him to becoming an oral eater. We are big foodies in our family. We love food. We love, we honestly travel and plan our vacations around food. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so it was so heartbreaking to see this kid as he was growing, had never had a sip of a bottle had never tasted medicine in his mouth. till he was probably four or five years old. He didn't have his first sip of water till he was probably two years, not having a sip of water in his mouth, which is insane. Um, so I think for us, for me as a mom, like not being able to serve that need for him, like it's every mom's duty and parents duty to nourish their child. It was so cut and paste and trying everything we could and constant research to try to get him to be an oral eater. And crazy because when the doctor told me they were putting the G tube and they said, just probably need it for like six months to a year. And he ended up having it until he was five. Oh, you know, that's still our struggle. So he's nine. He weighs 40 pounds, yeah. very petite. And he's getting to be the point where he's still a little bit thin. And I'm already starting to be like, oh, I got to start counting calories again, which I haven't done in a very long time. Something I think that's always going to be with him. He just, his stomach is not used to having like a full meal from having these little meals throughout the day when he was a baby. Um, he still is weak with chewing and certain textures and stuff. So he loves food though. I mean, that's, yeah. that's really beauty is I think all of what we did sitting in front of a high chair with us and every single meal, it didn't matter if we were just hooking them up to a pump. Cause a lot of people will just be like, okay, I'm just feeding them. 
but I really wanted him to get those habits and eventually be a world eater. Um, it took some time, but I'd say that that's by far his biggest struggle. Um, mm-hmm. his diagnosis. And what has worked for you and your family to get him to eat and to get him nourishment and what other maybe foods that really worked at the beginning and now? We had intensive therapy, multiple, both in home and outpatient through insurance. Um, so at least twice a week, he was getting feeding therapy, working on textures, tastes, building up chewing on these chew sticks that they would give us. Um, and then eventually because his reflux was so bad and he was vomiting anywhere from three to five times a day in my home on formula that the doctors, you know, prescribing, I started doing research and like we all do as parents and found something called a blenderized diet. And so what that is, is where you blend, it was started by people that maybe have feeding tubes for life, you know? And so they don't want to be on a formula, even though formula can't provide you everything. It's technically like not as natural as just real food. And I'd read some stuff that said, you know, this, once I switched my kid to a blenderized diet where I'm blending all the food and getting all the calories and needs met, you know, on the food pyramid, um, that their color changed, that they started to have more interest in food and their reflux improved. These were all things that he actually lacked. He looked sickly. He constantly was vomiting and he had no interest in food. Yeah. I started researching it. I taught, I bought this book, um, for blenderized diets and I actually brought it into my GI and it was, I think I had to have their support because otherwise there's been horror stories of parents that try this and you know, they call child protective services on them. It's ridiculous. Oh gosh. But she actually walked in the room with the book, the same book that I had. And so I knew I had found the right GI at that point. And she was like, let's, let's try it. You know, let's work with a nutritionist. And the minute we did that, it was life-changing. He went from vomiting three to five times a day to once a day, his Mm -hmm. color changed. He started finding interest in food with that though, comes a whole nother added job to my life because I'm having to blend fruits, vegetables, oils, fats, meat every single day, three to five meals a day. So I would actually take Sundays, Sunday evening, my husband put my daughter to bed. And pretty much from two o'clock, probably like 5 p.m. to like 11 p.m., I would blend for the entire week. And I bought all these little containers and then I'd pull the container out three a day because I needed one for every meal. Um, But it was something that I look back. I'm like, I'm really, really glad that I made that switch because I think that is definitely a huge contributor to him becoming an oral eater. That is great. And we'll put that book in the description of this podcast too, so people can see what book you're talking about. But that's amazing that you had that foresight and the, also the GI support yeah, to do it. Cause it's definitely more of an alternative approach, but, um, and it's a lot of work. Yeah. And it's a lot of work because you really have to get all of the, but it makes sense. Work and take correct. You know, mm-hmm. it makes sense that it would reduce his reflux, make him look and feel better because it's actual food. And they yes. do make shelf stable, um, formulas. Now they're actually real blended food. I'll share those two nourish is one, uh, through functional formularies, um, which is great because when we would travel, I wasn't just going to switch it back to formula. So I could ship, you know, we're gonna go see grandma for a week. Great. I don't have to blend anything. I don't want to do all that while I'm visiting family. I could just bring the pouches and it was amazing. That's great. Yes. We will definitely share that as well. What word would you use to describe Cohen? I'd say rel- relentless. Mm-hmm. And that's in a good way. I think yeah. uh, he doesn't give up. He tries everything, food, new activities without any hesitation, complete opposite of my daughter or how I would be. Um, Cause he doesn't really know what he's getting himself into <laughs> <sighs> relentless in his love. He is 
it doesn't matter who's who it is if he's met the person once or if he doesn't even know the person he will go up and give them a hug tells me he loves me anywhere from 10 to 15 times a day mm-hmm. so yeah he's just he's relentless with a lot of stuff he's determined especially if it's a preferred activity he wants to learn he will play it over and over and over until he gets it um like a trick shot that he's learning on the basketball hoop he saw dude perfect do which are some youtubers you know yep. he'll sit there behind and he'll spend hours until he gets it i think that's an amazing quality to have in an individual. Um, yeah. and with everything that he's gone through, I think it's kind of required. <laughs> yes. So I'd say he's relentless. Yeah. It's a good one. So I think, um, I do everything in my power, whether it's in his school this year, I bought uh, t-shirts from our outshine labels, um, 22 Q marketplace store that we have for all the teachers that are part of his team to wear on his birthday. And they all took pictures. They're like, thank you so much for doing this. This really like I think just normalizes it. They were able to research the foundation a little bit, but again, it's building, it's slowly building that sense of community around him. Because I think when you don't do that, you're really doing your child a disservice because then they, they can only assume. But if you're telling them clearly what this is, how it affects him, how it's going to change over their life, you know? Um, so I think for me, yeah, to answer your question about the future is it's just continuing to build that sense of community for him so that he can have the best outcome possible. Mm-hmm. I love that idea of getting the teachers, the 22 Q shirts. I love that. That's awesome. And what is the biggest struggle for you navigating your son's 22 Q? More to what another mom said, what Eileen said, I was thinking about her podcast when I listened is just the invisibility of this diagnosis. When the geneticist told us about 22 Q, she said, and I can still remember her saying this, it's a double-edged sword. She's like, they look typical, which is great because you're not going to get as many looks and stares, but you will get those looks and stares once they get to a certain age and they're not performing the way a neurotypical child would. Cohen always looks a couple years younger. So when he was a baby and he still wasn't walking, well, that's fine. No one's questioning that when he, or when he was five or six, but he looked like a three or four year old having a tantrum in the middle of the grocery store, it got looks, but it wasn't like, Oh, why, why is he doing that? But now I think is the hardest part because we unfortunately live in a world where unless you have a visible difference, one, you're not taken seriously by either schools or society. Um, and two, there's just these expectations that are put on an individual that they might not be able to meet or reach at that time. And it's met with judgment. It's met with questioning instead of acceptance and curiosity. So it's taken me a long point to a long time to get to the point where I'm not emotional about it. Um, but I still have my moments and, honestly, it happens often when he's doing things that I would never thought he would do. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying not to cry. <laughs> yeah. Um, just watching him do some of the things that he does and to look back at like, no one knows that he coded. No one knows he's been through 15 surgeries. No one knows that he was doing in-home therapy every single day for like the first four or three years of his life. Um, no one knows he's been under, you know, anesthesia 15 times, had I can't even count now 12 or 11 or 12 surgeries. I always lose the number. Um, I think that's, and that's more of like, I guess a me problem, but it's a a thing where I'm like, I want, I want to be able to like say that vocally to people like, wow, if you had any idea, you know, or maybe he does something and then he doesn't do it to the standards of what people think. And then it's just so exhausting. I don't want to have to go through the whole story. And that's the other thing is it's like, you know, you go to your, your, when you get a new doctor and you have to retell, it's kind of like, 
when you go to the doctors and it says, please list the number of surgeries and medical difficulties your child like, has had. And you're chart? like, you're like I chart. don't have time for this. <laughs> so I think, um, I think, yeah, that's been the biggest struggle for me. And especially I knew this was going to happen, but when we, re we relocated to Colorado, we had such a huge community in Chicago when he was a baby, they saw him at his absolute worst. So there was instant understanding because they lived it and they saw it with us. Then we moved to California. I'm surrounded by family, close friends. He was still very medically fragile. Again, created that whole community, but now like all the cords and wires have been removed we are very typical looking. We don't have a feeding tube attached to us. We don't have an oxygen tank and a monitor attached to us. We're not going to therapy every single day, but we're having some behaviors and social things that are coming up. And now I have a brand new community that I'm trying to educate and to basically play catch up with. And I knew that was going to be the biggest challenge about moving. And it honestly has proven to be, um, so just trying to educate, you know, his new friends and family members, um, and it's totally not their fault, you know, that he's very dynamic. He has multiple diagnoses on top of 22Q, mm -hmm. um, but trying to educate them and explain it's a miracle that he's literally playing with your child today. It's a miracle that he is playing soccer and kicking a ball into a goal, mm -hmm. but no one knows that. And so I think it's just that it's almost like that internal celebration that I want everyone to celebrate with me, but I kind of, my husband and I kind of do it have to do it privately, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. I'd say too, I'd just be lying if I didn't find it frustrating to have to push, push on and advocate for him day in and day out. It's extremely exhausting. I know everyone listening to this can understand that it, it is a syndrome that should be so wild, widely understood and known based on the occurrence of it. Um, and yet here we are. And I think that, you know, to answer one of your first questions about why did I start the foundation? that has always been my, my other ultimate goal is that it should be a household name is what I say. It should be known like Down syndrome. It should be known like autism. And if it was a lot of the families wouldn't be fighting the fight that they're fighting every day. Beautifully said it's not known. It is an invisible diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And it's, it is so remarkable when you do see your little guy doing something that you may have thought he might not have been able to do, you totally. know, in that first or second year of life and, and how strong they are and how remarkable they are to just continue to be the happiest people on the planet some days, yeah. but <laughs> some days, yeah. but it's, and, and it is true. It's like you, you go up to people and you're like, if you only knew, mm -hmm. if you only knew how strong this little boy is. If you only knew, yes, he's having a temper tantrum right now, but he deserves his temper tantrum. Like it's okay. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. And what are other struggles that your family or friends may not see as a parent of a 22 Q child? Just how exhausting this journey can be. Um, it's probably our family's fault in a way because we due to the best of our ability, um, support him and raise awareness for him. And I, I probably don't share as many of the struggles as I should. I'm in kind of a unique situation with running a foundation and having a, you know, being a parent. So I do actually struggle with that a lot is sometimes I have questions. Sometimes I have things that I'm struggling with, but I don't always put it out there on social media or with friends and family. Um, but just the sheer amount of effort to get through a day sometimes is exhausting. Um, and we're talking about the bad days. So yeah you know, the, the tantrums, the explanation, the perseverance that they do where they ask the same question over and over because of their anxiety of when it, it's not 
even necessarily related to fear. It's more just reassuring them. Yes, we are going to grandma's tomorrow. Yes, we are going. Yeah, we said that five times ago, we're going to grandma's tomorrow. It just gets exhausting. Um, and just the amount of advocacy that does never turns off. It doesn't matter if you're at school with teachers, um, it continues at the grocery store, the trip to the park, wherever. Um, I don't know if it's just my personality and the urge to explain constantly and educate about 22Q, why he is the unique individual that he is, but it's just tiring. Um, it's something that I don't think someone, unless they live this life, understands is how exhausting it really can be. That the fight is not just when they're little, and that we're always going to have to do as parents until yeah. pretty much the day we leave this earth is, yeah. is to fight for them. So exactly. And what in those tough times, what do you do as a mom and caregiver to support yourself and take a breath? Uh, it's changed over time. In the first three years, I did nothing for myself, literally nothing, maybe even four years because he was so medically fragile. Um, but now that my kids are in school, he's in school full time. I do have a flexible schedule with the foundation as I'm really trying to exercise and doing things for me, which I've learned over time is not selfish. If I want to participate in a book group once a month, that's not selfish. I should not have mom guilt. I still do, but I think really planning out those times. And so my husband and I have made a conscious effort to do more time together, you know, away from the kids if we can to, because it's, you know, this is a unique journey and the level of communication <laughs> is 110 times more than what it needs to be with this type of situation than a neurotypical kid mm -hmm. just come up and you have to be on the same page. Right. Um, and yeah, just taking time for myself and not feeling guilty about it, but that did not come while he was, and I don't think it can, you know, I think no. there's a time and a place and I'm, I'm just at the place now where he's right now he's doing great. Who knows what, mm -hmm. you know, what is to come in a few more years. Um, yeah. but right now I'm going to take that opportunity for myself because yeah. I, if I'm not good, he's not good. Exactly. If you're not good, he's not good. And like you said, in those early years, it's almost next to impossible, not even on your mind or radar to take yeah. time for yourself, but it is so important, whether it is just a 10 minute walk or just sitting outside in the sunshine, not even moving, just yeah. sitting somywhere, laying yeah, the ground, not even moving. <laughs> literally go it. grab a cup of coffee, sit outside and just feel the sun on your face for five minutes, just mm -hmm. to breathe, catch your breath and just reset because it can get overwhelming and it can, the emotion and gravity of the situation can just drown you. Yeah. And for any new parents listening that are maybe just starting this journey, what advice or what words of wisdom do you have for them? First of all, I'd say congratulations, no matter how old your child is. Um, that was something that really struck me. I did not hear congratulations about having Cohen for probably the first four months of his life. I think people didn't know what to say. They were, they knew we were in a like battle mode, you know, closest friends and family did of course, but not one doctor. They would come around and say, oh, he's a three month old with DeGeorge every single time never once heard congratulations. So that's the first thing I always tell parents because you're, this is still a baby. This is a new human being that you just brought into this world. It doesn't matter what they have going on. They are amazing. We love them dearly and they're going to change the world. And so they deserve a congratulations. I love that. Um, yeah. It struck me because the first time someone said it, I said, oh my gosh, I haven't actually heard that, mm -hmm. you know, because it's, when you start off that rough, it's, it's hard to, I guess, find something happy to say to someone. I'm not sure. Um, yeah. I, people are dealing with it too. You yeah. know, family and friends are grieving say, too. You know, yeah. yeah. 
And so they just don't know what to say. Yeah. Sometimes, especially if it's your first yeah. um, medically fragile child in the family. Totally. You know, good advice. Say, enjoy them and try not to get mm-hmm. hung up on all the checklists um, and really stay organized. I think when you inherit this unique journey, you're not just taking on mom role or dad role on the scheduler of appointments. You're taking on the, the pharmacist job, the insurance bill, which is a whole full-time job in itself. So I think just staying organized, I always had a medical uh, journal and binder, everything very organized. We've kind of been able to go away from that. And now occasionally I'll put something in there and looking back now, I have these two, you know, yep. I don't know what's the biggest binder you can get, but they're massive. Same. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's insane. And Gabe's first year of life. I asked, I told you the story. I asked for the medical records from Boston children's for his oh, IEP. And they said, it's going to cost over a thousand dollars to print all of the paperwork. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, no, three years. I was like, you've got to be kidding Scan me. It like, no, it's going to cost $1,400 to print. Would you like us to print it? I was like, no, yeah. So yeah, it's insane. The paperwork is insane, but what has your 22 cutie taught you? Honestly, about the hidden world of special needs communities and sick children. You know, you always see the commercials, the sad St. Jude commercials. And it's, I mean, honestly, the only thing I ever thought of was kids with leukemia or cancer, because I did have a few friends growing up that had that. No one talks about this world. Um, It's very hidden. And until you're part of it, you do not understand to the depth of how incredible it is to have a healthy child. So looking at my 11 year old, it's kind of insane to see what a typical pregnancy I have, normal delivery and typical life that she is living. It's kind of an anomaly because the amount of sick children and children that are affected by different syndromes and genetic makeups being much more involved in it now with the foundation is mind blowing. It's everywhere. There's so many people that have things that they don't even know they have or struggles that they don't realize why they have. And it's often just kind of pushed pushed into the back. You know, there's no one talks about it. It's a taboo subject. He's taught me to be proud of who we are, who I am to celebrate any accomplishment, no matter how big or small, um, and to be grateful for each day. Cause you really never know when it's going to be your last. Um, and like I said earlier, it's like the world is not picket fences and rainbows and anyone that says it is, is lying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because, and it's okay. It's okay to not be okay. Like the new saying that's out there, because I think it makes it more real. And this life is not meant to um, put on a facade and Mm -hmm. walk through it. Everyone has their own things that are going on some greater than others. I always knew I was going to have a child with special needs. I know that sounds crazy, but I really, since I always knew that I was going to have a child, I thought maybe that had ADHD or I didn't have a brother growing up that had ADHD pretty severely. And being a teacher, I just was like, I can, I'm going to be able to handle this. Cause everyone always say like, you'd make a great mom for like a kid that had some things going on. I've heard that before when I was younger, but never did I think (laughs) to this level. So I'm really like, I'm really honored to be part of this community. And I never knew how much I needed it. Um, sounds Mm -hmm. crazy. Like how much I needed going through all of that trauma, but honestly, it's made me such a better person. And I'm so much more humbled at things now, patient, and also just to be able to have exposure to people that I would have never crossed paths with, you know, it doesn't have to be a 22 Q family or individual moms that had kids with feeding tubes, friends with some of them would have never crossed paths with them. It's taught you a lot. Mm-hmm. It's made, would you say it's made you a better person? Yeah. It's made our whole family better people. My daughter doesn't know it yet, but she is an amazing human and all the things that she does. She's a huge advocator and for the underdog in her school already. 
maybe not mm-hmm. to her brother all the time, but mm-hmm. she's constantly having other kids backs. And that's just mm-hmm. because she's being raised in a household like this. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's because all better people, my husband blown away by, he was always, I'd say a little immature when we first met. And once we had Cohen and Isla, especially with Isla, but then when Cohen came along, he's really stepped up to the plate and has grown into the father puts on a certain facade and you never know what like a gentle giant he is and what a special place he has for any special needs individual, like really. So you guys are an awesome family. Oh my goodness. Um, and my last question for you is if you could go back to when you were driving Isla in the car and you got your 22 Q diagnosis and you started sobbing, what would you tell yourself or do in that moment? That it's going to be okay. I know that sounds lame, but that it's all going to work out. You're going to have, I think I thought my life was hard back then (laughs) and it's so much more challenging now, but it's still okay. And it's great actually. And we, I try to just focus on the positive and not the negative. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. It's good advice. Well, thank you, Lindsay, for sharing. No, just again, thank you for your vision and putting this together. I look forward each week or every time that you put out a new episode means so much just to really get to know these families and individuals a lot. Lindsay, thank you so much for sharing Cohen with us today. And I know that one day 22Q will become a household name. Thanks to all of your efforts. I want to thank our listeners for listening in. And if you would like to contact me or like to be on this podcast, please feel free to reach out at 22QPodcast at gmail.com. And never forget 22Q family that you are not alone.